Do you know what a romp is? A romp. A lot of good fun. But if you use the letters R-O-M-P, you could come up with rudeness, overseas destinations, mirth and pastries. They all feature in Leslie Truffle's book, The Scandalous Life of Sasha Tort. Well, Leslie, welcome. Thank you. Good morning, Jan. Is it, you know, there's Sasha Tort and your last name, Leslie Truffle. Now, is there a connection between all these sweeties? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm, I'm simply Leslie Truffle, but Sasha Tort is, is um, not only just a patissier, she also makes fine chocolates, croquembouche, curd de la creme. We're going to hear about those later. But first of all, we're going to start with R, romp for rudeness. Now, rudeness, going against the manners of the day are more evident when it's a class-conscious age. So when and where have you set this book, Leslie? Okay, Mm. so we open the novel in Wolftown in Tasmania in 1912. Um, I wish to point out immediately that Wolftown doesn't exist. It's a completely fictitious town. Really? (laughs) (laughs) Well, when you think of country Tasmania, you think of a bit of a backwater, but all the culture of any big city is there in Wolftown. How would you describe Wolftown? Wolftown is a really strange mixture. It was um, founded by uh, the two siblings, Wolfs, Marigold and her, her maverick brother. And basically it was founded on all the vices. So you get a lot of courtesans, whorehouses, mm. all that sort of thing. But at the same time, you've also got people like Brendan Kane who are very, very much Shakespearean intellectuals, and he establishes the Baudelaire Theatre. So you've got a strange mixture of... Um, yeah, it's a trading port, and it's got yes. associated hotels, theatres, there's the wealthy landowners, and the, the people, as you say, the generations, have made money from many of their different occupations. Now, this is a quote from the book. Amid the bustle were local girls selling seafood, rotgut booze, or themselves. We have a lot of entrepreneurial young women in Wolftown. <laughs> <laughs> Now, Sasha Tort is one of those women. She's now got time to write her memoir. And this is where I would like the first couple of sentences of The Scandalous Life of Sasha Tort to be read by author Leslie Truffle. It is every woman's fear that she will turn into her mother. And my mother, Rose Tort, is widely believed to be an adulteress, strumpet and murderess. So the battle appears lost, as I have now been convicted of murder. However, I wish to state categorically that I, Sasha Tort, am innocent of such a crime. Absolutely. And we, we, because the book is written in her way, we know that she didn't do it, but what, why and who and, oh, we're led to have to imagine that one until we find out at the end. So um, her mother's disappeared. Her father, he was so distraught. What did he do? Her father was actually desperately in love with the mother, but he was a pants man, so he had (laughs) affairs everywhere. And it's only when she disappears, Rose, um, I don't want to give any spoilers here. Yeah, but it's the Apple Island and he sort of does something disastrously with apples. We can leave it there. (laughs) But, you know, so... 
poor Sasha, she was an only child. So what did she what did she learn from her mother and her father? What she learned from her mother and father is that you have to be very, very alert. Um, it's quite common in households that have any form of domestic violence and upheaval. The child is permanently switched on, they never relax. So Sasha, despite all this, manages to become a very loving person, but at the same time she's very, very wary and also she's very adult in her in the way she is as a child. She's way, way older than her years. Mm. Now her father does want her to be a particularly good horsewoman because all cane women are good horsewomen. So oh. <laughs> she doesn't start out with a pony, does she? No. Sasha's grandfather, who's um Really, I don't know how you can describe him in one word. You can't really, no. can you? He's, he's um, an intellectual, but he's also a really rough guy who used to fight in the boxing tents. Um, and he decides, actually he wins this horse in, um, from a bloke called Mortal Ruin who <laughs> is eager to get rid of the horse because he loses money to Brendan Kane and he gives, he gives the horse to the grandfather. Anyway, Sasha thinks she's going to get a lovely, cute little pony, but she actually ends up with an 18-hand high horse. She can't even get on the damn thing. Um, they, need a, they need to build mounting steps for her to get up there. But she does. She rides and conquers it. Yeah. And they form an affinity. And then um, the grandfather actually sort of says, it's time that you went out in society as yes. a young girl to a pony club. Yes. <laughs> and this is where I'm going to get uh, Leslie Truffle to read again from her book because I think there's a lot here that uh, Sasha actually looks around and notices. I should just mention before I read it, the name of the horse is Satan. That's the name he came with. That was how Mortal Ruin christened him and they kept the name Satan. Okay. Sasha, you know my daughter, Thomasina Brown? No, madam. You'll be competing against her today. Thomasina's been riding since she was four, and she always wins. <laughs> every event, every year, without fail. It has been said by those who are qualified to judge that my daughter is an equestrian prodigy. Mrs Adelaide Brown smiled revealing white pearly teeth set off by two excessively sharp eye teeth, the type of teeth common to crazed feral cats and hostile tigers. The impression was startling but gone in a flash. I then remembered she'd been my mother's rival. Mrs Brown poked Satan authoritatively on his flank with her parasol, Satan's head jerked up and he sidled closer to her, flattened his ears and bared his tombstone teeth. Mrs Brown leapt backwards, revealing her fear. Grandpa smiled benignly and Tim gave me a conspiratorial grin. I got the distinct impression that neither of them liked her. No, this is, this is sort of typically of Sasha who can read adults very well but it's also this pony club that she made her first and basically only female friend Viola. What was Viola's background? Such a contrast to her own. Viola Taylor is the daughter of a vicar and she's actually a very naughty child um, 
And in the in the um, Taylor household, it's an old saying. They used to talk about who wears the pants in the family. And in in the Taylor household, it's Mrs. Taylor. And so this, the vicar's reduced to hiding out in the church and drinking the drinking the <laughs> sacred wine. Um, so Sasha's grown up a very different way to Viola, but. Um, they're matched in naughtiness, in wickedness. Oh, they are, aren't they? Oh, yeah. yes. Um, well, you mentioned Brendan Kay and the grandfather, and he had such a big influence on her. You know, he, she, she was meant to be going to him to have maths tutorials, and, well, he realised that she was just useless. You know, her, her, his grandfatherly advice was get, get a good accountant because <laughs> you're going to be useless at maths. And instead, he took her to the hotel, the local hotel, and introduced her to, well, people. Once again, more adults that she got to understand. Uh, a lovely guy, that Brendan Kane character. Very, very nice. Um, right, so then into her life came her Aunt Lily. Now, not quite rudeness here, but seduction. From page 96, tell us a bit about Lily. Okay. From a very early age, Lily had been able to catch the eyes of discerning gentlemen. And by the time she was 16, Lily Kane was an acknowledged manslayer. She cemented her bad reputation by making off with a visiting British diplomat and fetched up in London. Easily bored, she then abandoned this dashing gentleman and reinvented herself as an exotic dancer in Paris, after which she became the mistress of a famous Montmartre painter. Yeah, another line further down is, Lily was catnip to the male species. So this is Lily, this is Lily who, Aunt Lily, who came into her, uh, who, into her life. Now, um... We're looking at the romp, and the O was for overseas destinations. And because of Aunt Lily talking constantly about all her places overseas, it really got that interest in Sasha. So Sasha and her friend, uh, Viola, went overseas. Went One of the first places, London. And Leslie Truffle, they went to Hotel de Barry. Why is that important? <laughs> Well, my not previous novel, my first novel, was called The Hotel de Barry. So I think what I'm going to do is I so enjoyed this one. I'm going to have to go and read about what happened at the Hotel de Barry. But then it was in Paris. And, she, and Sasha was looking for a particular chemist. Why? Sasha has become addicted to... Um, she was seduced, actually, by one of the brothers, Dasha, with an elixir. Mm, Pharaoh elixir. And well, let's hear about it from page 330, just what it did to her, this Pharaoh elixir. Oh. Okay. Held in bondage to the Pharaoh's elixir, I readily believed that there was nothing I could do to shape my future. I had no more fight left in me, so I gave up and abandoned myself to the wheel of predestined fate. And in return... I experienced a voluptuous sense of release. In short, dear reader, I lost my way and gave myself over to the devil. Oh, to the devil, I tell you what. So, um, she does get saved, but I'm not saying by whom or whatever, or because it there's 
more fun to be had. And that fun was the M, the mirth. Claire Dash's Winter Ball. Just give us the background and explain why Sasha was involved, Sasha was involved in this. Well, Sasha by this stage has set up her world famous patissier. And she is contracted by Lady Dasher to supply the midnight supper. And because everybody's influenced by what was going down in Paris at the time, Belle Epoque, amazing food, it has to be completely over the top. So Sasha, as her final pièce de résistance, has a huge croquembouche. Yeah. Which is those um, custard balls all linked to each other. And hers is not just presented on a platter, it's borne on a platter by um, several young men, sprayed gold, wearing nothing but red satin loincloths. She goes for the whole thing. And inside the croquembouche is just a touch of maybe Ferrer's elixir. (laughs) A tad more than a touch. And it basically ignites all the women who are there who sample it. Oh, look, other funny, really funny bits in this that I really loved. Because you've set it where you have, we have um, the discussion about orgasms with Sigmund Freud. (laughs) That was funny. And, of course, there's also the Titanic around that time too. Now, we've alluded to the P in, um, in romp, the pastries. Aunt Lily, she really, when... She, uh, Sasha was living with her. Lily really wanted to extend her uh, knowledge of conversation and people and you know, just how to be a really good woman. And uh, so Aunt Lily gets this chef or cook, Charlie O'Rourke. And Charlie O'Rourke is fantastic at all things... Um, Sweet and savoury. Then for the 15th birthday, the wonderful grandfather, Brendan Kane, realises that uh, Sasha is, uh, French isn't all that good. So she, she buy, he buys her or he gives her French cookbooks by Anton Karim. So I assume, Leslie, that he's Trudings? No, Ant- Anton Karim actually did exist he was abandoned by his father on the streets during the French Revolution when they were basically chopping heads off. And somehow he lifted himself out of the gutter, and it was a bloodied gutter too, by the way, um, as an abandoned child and became a world-famous patissier. And he becomes Sasha's model. Mm. And it's he who makes the most extravagant things. And in these cookbooks that the grandfather gives her, she has to learn French. But it's got the, it's got the um, illustrations there of these things that Karim called extraordinaires. Oh, yes. I can picture them. And this is where she gets her idea for the, uh, the delight that she presented to Claire Dash's Winter Ball. Um, now, by a young age, and she's she's really working very long hours. She's got her own shop with um, Charlie and Snuff the Baker, and uh, who's also in charge of Del- Dolores and Maggie. Now, it's that Thomasina, the Thomasina that she actually beat in that pony club. <laughs> the same wretched woman. The same wretched woman who comes in, you know, when everybody's around and it's it's opening week, and she comes in, <clears throat> and she's served by Maggie. And she says, oh, 
I can't be served by an Aborigine. And so, oh, there's more humour to be had, shall we say. <laughs> Absolutely. But she's, but Thomas then is not the only rude person that comes in. There's Captain Adam Dasher who comes in, in very insulting and rude and crude until he recognises Sasha. Oh, a bit of hot fire going on there. Now, it's his brother, Roger Dasher, who has said such wonderful things as females are passive by nature. We men have got no choice but to seduce, force or buy the women we want. Oh, Leslie, <laughs> how, did you, how did you get a character like Rat Roger? I know him. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, he committed perjury in court to get Sasha framed for murder. But what has he done for her in jail? He actually does have a conscience, despite the fact he's a complete narcissist. So what he does is he has the north tower of the jail uh, completely refurbished in a very, very elegant way. Tiger skins, mm. sumptuous upholstery. His taste is not always very good, of course, but um, it, a lot of things are very heavily overpadded, so to speak. Japanese erotica on the walls, all that sort of stuff. Yeah, so you know he's got a pass, but why is he doing it? Oh. Um, other people that you just throw in here, you know, you just don't tell us why or whatever, or give us too much detail. But the lawyer who so um, convicted Sasha, uh, Al- Algernon Wolf, <laughs> an absolute woman hater. <laughs> In what ways was he a woman hater? He's a complete misogynist in that he was um, madly in love with a girl who stood him up. And she didn't just stand him up at the altar. She fled in the middle of the night. She packed up her trousseau and fled with his client, who was a bushranger. And the bushranger, he just spent something, Algernon, the, the lawyer, had spent something like nearly two years extracting this guy, not only from prison, but getting him a pardon. And then in order to reward Algernon for his hard efforts, um, he, takes off, he takes off with um, the bride-to-be, the blushing bride-to-be. Oh. So at the age of 31, Algernon persists in living in his magnificent mansion with only manservants for company. Algernon eschews all contact with females and his loathing of the fairer sex extends to his exclusively male stable of horses and hunting dogs, all of whom are ungelded and therefore visibly male. <laughs> Look, there's so many characters in this book and it, it, you've written it at such a um, look, well done, Leslie. I was fueled by a lot of champagne. Oh, and nice champagne if it's the same brand, brand yes. that's in the book. Sasha, Sasha and I would have a sip together late at night. <laughs> and cavort, I and think. And cavort a little. Cavort. <laughs> yeah, I had to cut that out or we wouldn't have got to the end. Look, there's things about Sasha that, Sasha, that are, you know, you've made her more interesting than just the convorting. Psychic with animals and does she have the cane curse? Does she have the ability of her auntie Lily to tightrope naked across dead man's gorge? 
<laughs> well, I think Sasha's, Sasha's antics will have you laughing and her pastries will also give you pleasure. <laughs> oh, Leslie Truffle. The book we've been talking about is The Scandalous Life of Sasha Tort, and it's published by HarperCollins. But, uh, um, and... The Hotel de Barry, was that published by HarperCollins too? Both books were by HarperCollins, yes. That came out about a year ago. Now, hopefully I've got Carmel Shoot on the line. Carmel? You have. Hello. Oh, isn't this fun? Now, Carmel, you better explain why I'm talking to you and Leslie Truffle. Well, because Leslie is doing us the honour of speaking at our Sisters in Crime event at the Rising Sun Hotel in South Melbourne on the 3rd of March in the evening at 8 o'clock, along with um, a US author called Amy Stewart, who's also set her book pre-World War One. Those, though her second book does stretch into World War, uh, into 1915, but that was still pre-World War One for America. <laughs> yeah, so we've got... Um uh, an American writer coming in, and you know, I, I'm sort of looking at her book, and it talks about sheriffs. Now, when we think about American sheriffs, I'm thinking cowboys, and so she's got a female sheriff. And this is actually based on um, her character, Constance Cop. It's actually based on um, a real life um, sheriff and her family. So she was one of the first. Um, uh, women to uh, serve as a deputy sheriff. A woman back in that time. Well, yes, she'd so have to be... starting 1914, yeah. So she, uh, I know this, this woman, towers over most men, has no interest in marriage or domestic affairs. and But she's got a secret and that's why she's out of the city, into the country, being a sheriff and doing stuff. That's right, with her two sisters. Now, you know, you, we often think about um, sort of patriarchal societies, sort of at the turn of the century without women's uh, suffrage and things like this. And But though uh, Constance Cop being the woman sheriff and we know about um, Sasha um, Tort roaming the world, so was there a bit more freedom, do you think, or what was happening here? Well, I think women still had to... Have a, had a pretty tough life pre-World War One. They, they did get a bit more freedom, certainly in terms of the workforce, in terms of um, once the war happened in both America and um, Australia and Great Britain, because um, in some places were taking the place of men. Mm. And after World War One, one of the things that changed was that women were less likely to go into domestic service. Okay. So a they, you know, once they had a taste of factory life, it was fantastic compared to being domestic service where you're lucky to get a half day off a week and you are really, you know, a domestic slave. Mm. Yes, that's very true. Now, that's quite about this night. The past has proved such fertile ground for criminal storytelling. Carmel, why, why has the past proved fertile ground? Well, there. Well, there's. There's. His, one of the great things about crime fiction, in my view, is it just gives you a lens to explore all sorts of things. So, um, for instance, Solari Gentle has her series set in 1930s Sydney, 
And she is able to use that to explore some issues which are now sort of contemporary, such as, you know, the rise of demagogues, as we've witnessed in the United States, mm. and uh, the rise of right-wing nationalism. So she was, you know, she had, she basically decided to use this as her her storytelling ground because she wanted to find out how we got from the 1930s into World War Two, and so. Her books are a one way of exploring all of those historical details. And the thing about, say, her books, for instance, is that she has real characters. Her first book, A Few Right-Thinking Men, for instance, is about the battle between the communists and the new guard in Sydney, and it culminates in this very famous incident uh, where... Colonel De Groot slashes the the opening ribbon, the, the opening ribbon for the Sydney Harbour Bridge, mm. and he, you know, dashes in on a horse in uniform with a big sword. Yeah, I suppose there's you know, things in the past we all know about which are you know can be used as the central bit for books, but um, I just sort of think a female sheriff in America in over in America I'd, I'd never think of as a detective, and uh, even the lovely Sasha Tort, they they make strange well you know she she was she was actually not the detective she was actually the victim but um mm. knows what happened the crime the is truth. a very broad church and i'm not just referring to the tv program <laughs> <laughs> so just remind us where amy and leslie are speaking again so they're both going to be on at the rising sun hotel uh in south melbourne and you can book online through the Citizen Crime website or just turn up at the door, um, take your luck, but I would, you know, urge people to book. And people are very welcome to join us for dinner from 6.30. The food is fantastic and you get to sit at a table and then you can just stay there and enjoy the show at 8 o'clock. Sounds like a good night out. And I tell you, um, if Amy Stewart is half as... Uh, entertaining as Les- Leslie Truffle is, would be a very good night out. Well, she actually started off writing non-fiction as written these very, you know, well-selling books, The Drunken Botanist and Wicked Plants. So I think she'll be vastly entertaining and we already know that Leslie is. We do, we do. Look, and congratulations. How many years has Sisters in Crime been going now, Carmel? We've been going for 25 years. We celebrated our 25th anniversary Um a silver anniversary in November with she killed a mm. one day um, crime spree. Yeah, um, I know that was quite successful. And it was. What, and what I can't believe is last year, because, you know, um, Sisters in Crime do give out good awards, that, that stiletto, um, Emma Viskic. She wrote Resurrection Bay, and she she really won everything, didn't she? Well, she won three David Awards, um, Best Best Debut, Best Fiction, and also the Reader's Choice. And then the very next day, in our David Awards, the very next day she won the Ned Kelly Award for Best First Fiction. 
Yeah, absolutely incredible. Well, Carmel, I hope that... And she'll be speaking, can I just say, later on in the year. Oh, right. Uh, So, just reminding, Amy and Leslie will be speaking at the Sisters in Crime on Friday, March the 3rd at the Rising Sun Hotel. Well, thanks for speaking with us. Carmel Shute from Sisters in Crime and Leslie Truffle, thank you so much. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.